Hi there and welcome to Blaze Explains again. This time I'm going to be covering pretty in-depth one of my sort of pet topics of the past few years because it's something I've thought a lot about, I have spent a lot of time considering and it's also something that dominates our day-to-day discussion of the news business. It's how we get information. It's it's kind of the lifeblood of of the public business world, if that makes sense. Not the lifeblood of the business world, because industry and so many unseen things determine everything that happens on a daily basis. But this is a massive thing. And if you've ever gone to a university, you would have heard a lot about this. I'm going to talk about Silicon Valley. What I mean by Silicon Valley is not just the actual Silicon Valley. I mean the startup world. I mean wherever that is, whether it's Berlin, London, Silicon Alley in New York. Read an article on that once. Japan, Southeast Asia, Africa, everywhere. It's the startup world. But let's just say Silicon Valley. I'm going to cover it through the framework of stories. Now, look, I don't have... On this, I'm going to be, in in, in effect, grinding an axe because I am going to highlight a problem that I see with it. But it's not that there's anything... I don't think anything needs to be said about really the allure of Silicon Valley and of everything that kind of comes with it. I think it sort of speaks for itself. And I think that the what people don't like about it, they kind of already know. So what I'm going to give voice to, I hope, is what I think is the problem. I'm going to cover it through the framework of some stories. Now, they're going to be basically problematic stories. A recent one is Wirecard. We will touch on that. I'm going to start with Theranos, the mother of them all, which is where the lines were blurred all the way into fraud and beyond, really. And I'm going to talk in anecdotes as we work our way through on my primary thought, which is the rise of the professional fundraiser. Raising money is an incredible skill to have. However, people are not taught to run businesses and universities, especially top ones where the graduate networks will inevitably enable people to raise funds, inevitably allow them to access highly influential Uh, alumni networks and be able to pitch while they are still students the people connected to those and basically just investors at every point and they're taught very very well how to do it and it's very impressive plenty of lectures online I've, i've listened to a lot of them and it's and it's fascinating the problem is when you teach a bunch of kids that especially kids who are at top universities they they already feel quite special and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with, with, with having that self-belief. But they're not being taught how to run businesses. And the problem is, they don't care sometimes. Because what they need to do is raise the funds. Because that's what's going to give them a job. And then they can move on to the next project. And the next fundraise, basically. And I worry because there are some people who are brilliant and some people who are wonderful. But there are some people for whom this really highlights a problem. I'm just going to give a little quick story here, which is about my experience. When I was interviewing people for a business show in Southeast Asia, I interviewed, I did many interviews, so it's hard to figure out, someone who ran a startup. And in the course of the interview, 
in we, we shot it in five minute segments it's quite long we went pretty in depth and I just asked so what are you going to expand this into once you once you reach your initial targets or something to that effect just an offhand question and he said well hopefully we'll get it to one or two hundred million and then we'll sell it and I go okay you know you talked about all these projections don't you want to keep going he goes no 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 we're just going to get it to that point and sell it and I said okay and then there was something by the way he said it which made me think that he's not really in it to win it with this eventually he moved on the the startup didn't it, it failed and what was interesting was when I started to hear from people the inside story there was a point where there was apparently 50,000 active users on the website in fact now this is hearsay the real number was 12 12 people so basically nothing he didn't have a business and he spent quite a few years actually making it seem like he did now I was always very confused how as far as I could tell nobody was using this but you don't believe that because I said well 50,000 people are and I guess that's a drop in the ocean really but no it seemed what I hear that he made the whole thing up now this happens a lot guess what that person is now a vice president at a massive multinational unicorn bidecacorn I don't know just massive company and um, I just wonder I wonder what he said to get there and maybe I'm wrong and maybe maybe I'm being unfair so I will say that and I'm not going to mention the person by name but I don't think anyone would be able to figure it out from this but I think what it comes down to is he was very good at raising the money and that's I think what it is I think that's what why I think Uber can get away with not revealing so much data it has and yet continuing to have such a massive valuation and continue to raise money it's because they sell a dream and that dream is Mark Zuckerberg the anger that you want him and the desire to be a part of the next thing that is Mark Zuckerberg those are what investors feel private investors but fear or not it's ego and money one of the two most of the time now I'm not speaking for all of it I, I, I don't and I'm not saying that there's not loads of good people out there there are they're inspirational it's wonderful to work with them but I'm just think that we seem to forget sometimes quite what's going on and I hope you come away from this with a bit of an appreciation a desire to question people more and this is already happening it's now the case that when you try to raise funds people are saying okay minimum viable model something show me that you have a business not just an idea and that brings me to one of my favorite axioms which is ideas are cheap they mean absolutely nothing execution is everything now let's begin intro story fairness and how it combines everything bad fraud lying fundraising on lies I know a lot about Theranos I read the book I read the series of articles um, that came out I, I followed it somewhat in the news I also watched the documentary it's pretty much based on the book I'm um, it's a fascinating story it's fascinating in the the scale and arrogance of of the conceit and of the deceit behind it although conceit too and the people in it Let's walk through. It was founded in 2003 by Elizabeth Holmes then a 19 year old a dropout of Stanford's chemical engineering program. I believe she founded it at the instrument of her professor. I think he may have become an investor or I think he became a business advisor uh, to in the beginning. This is what Theranos offered. Theranos said blood testing with a prick of a finger, like wholesale, uh, full, uh, full suite, full range of blood testing, everything that you need 
which currently, if you ever have a blood test, you've got to go get a bunch of vials uh, taken of your blood in order to actually have the full works done. The idea of this is you walk into a shop, you walk into a doctor's office, shove your finger in it, or something like that, and it runs the whole spectrum of tests and you have your results in, in an hour. Or at the very least, even if it takes a day or two, there's various different models of it. The point is it's a prick of a finger and it's done. None of it was true, so well, we'll get to that. And another thing about Holmes, which I'm sure we'll touch with, they, she modelled herself on Steve Jobs, her hero, her idol. She deliberately spoke in a deeper voice to sound more alluring and captivating. She wore turtlenecks. I mean, she, she dressed like him. She emulated him. She drank the green juice. But then this goes into the fraud. But that's really into the ego there. In 2005, Theranos launched Theranos 1.0, a cartridge and reader system that entirely depend, that was entirely dependent on microfluids and biochemistry. Okay, exciting. August 2007, Theranos 1.0 was used in testing for patients with final case of cancer in Nashville. And Theranos receives an evaluation of $167 million. Just think about this. The final tests of patients with cancer. It's important to remember here, throughout this and at this point, they were not using these groundbreaking machines because they didn't exist. When they did actual blood tests, they went and did them on big machines. And when they didn't do them on the big machines, the ones that the industry used as a standard with massive amounts of blood, um, would, well, when they did, sometimes they'd effectively build it out with plasma, which makes actually the results somewhat inaccurate to give them results, or they'd fake the results. So one way or another, they were giving cancer patients fake results. Remember, 2010 was the year of the startup boom in Silicon Valley. Holmes and Sonny Balwani, the Theranos' new CEO, he became her um, boyfriend later, joined the company in 2009, approached Walgreens and Safeway for a partnership companies valued at a billion dollars. And Walgreens were all for it. Oh my God, every street corner in America, walk in, blood tested. And, and why not? Why not buy into the vision? Sonny Balwani, as we look at it, you find out that he, he made money in the 90s in the uh, uh, Silicon Valley tech bubble. Sonny Balwani, he, during the Silicon Valley boom in the 90s, early 2000s, he made money off, I want to say, Commerce Bank but basically a sort of fintech startup, financial technology startup. And he exited, uh, made a load of money um, when he sold up. And then that firm, I believe, lost all its valuation. But then he sort of grandly exaggerated his reputation in the years to come, his wealth and his reputation and his alleged genius. But what the book could only find was that is what the only thing that he'd ever made money on. So he basically got lucky. He joined at the right time and exited at the right time. And it seemed like he wasn't that good when he was there. But that was his whole, whole kind of MO. Sonny Balwani, as he was in the company, basically they enforced a, an incredible code of secrecy. And that code of secrecy was really law when there. Everybody had to sign uh, non-disclosure agreements. They had to sign um, basically everything that they... That, that, they, that Theranos could think of in terms of not disclosing what was going on. But of course, it was to protect the fact that really they had no capacity that they were claiming to sell. And Sonny would sort of brutally enforce this through the company. That was his role. He really became the enforcer, although this all came out later. In 2011, a mini lab called the 4S after the iPhone, again, worship of Steve Jobs, 
was launched, Theranos took over the blood testing at Safeway clinics in early 2012. This resulted in concern by Safeway's chief medical officer about the discrepancies in the test results, a concern dismissed by both Theranos and Safeway's CEO. Holmes had the ability to just win people over. She had people on the board. Funnily enough, none of them from sort of medicine or science, but sort of former Secretary of State, Henry Kissinger, George Schultz, uh, even General Mattis, who later became Secretary of Defense. These are serious people with massive political clout, but not medical clout. And that is interesting. Medical people within Theranos who raised concerns, and basically anybody who raised concerns, was forced out, was sacked. Summarily, quite brutally on occasion, there was, I believe, the chief scientist, and, and I may be wrong, but I'm just pulling this out, uh, I believe this is accurate, committed suicide in the end after being forced to leave. Uh, someone prominent, um, really. Holmes approached the military to take testing with the 4S, prompting a surprise visit by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services to check on them, because that's what happens when you start to enter these processes. Sonny Balwani told the agency the 4S was in fact still under development. In September 2013, Theranos launched the new 4S model on its website with an op-ed by Holmes in the Wall Street Journal. 2014, Partners Funds purchased 5.6 million shares in Theranos at $17 a share. Theranos was valued at $9 billion, with Holmes herself valued at $5 billion. She got the nickname, the female Steve Jobs. She got the cover of Forbes. She was holding a tiny, this is the, the, the thumb vial of blood that that was used allegedly in the Theranos machine. So when you look back at that cover, she's holding the pinnacle of her fraud up to the camera. This tiny thing, that was the lie. It was also what made it so magical. It was what made it so brilliant. If you go back and look at that cover, she stares at you with the piercing blue eyes. She's dressed as Steve Jobs. It's perfect lighting and it's all focused on this one thing held in the middle with a kind of an okay sign from her hand although that's incidental just to give you a picture there and then early in february 2015 john carreyrou investigative reporter from the wall street journal got a tip about allegedly many unethical and harmful practices at theranos his investigation starts to get published uh of october 2015 the second part out on the 16th a two-part investigation Meanwhile, Theranos got its first FDA approval in July 2015, which means they must have lied to get it. December 2015, another article comes out in the Wall Street Journal saying Theranos rigged tests to produce better results. With the Wall Street Journal articles out, more evidence starts to add up. FDA documents stating Theranos had shipped out uncleared medical devices in January 2016. CMS stated its concern that one of Theranos' labs posed risks to its patients. July 2016, CMS officially bans Theranos from the lab testing industry for two years. They settle in 2017 for a fee. I'm not sure the number I have here is right. It's $30,000. Let me check that, actually. I wonder if it actually was that low or whether I just put that in as a typo. July 20... That's what it says it. The uh, CMS, it promised the CMS it would not run a lab for two years and settled with the Arizona Attorney General to pay up to $4.65 million to residents who had paid for Theranos blood tests. 
not operating a lab until 2019, CMS reduced the monetary penalty to $30,000 and would not pull the company's clear certificates. Okay, so there you go. Later on, lawsuits started to pile up, including from Walgreens. Guess what? That deal never happened because the machines never existed. Investors and ex-patients. Important to remember, the Wall Street Journal is publishing this article. That's owned by Rupert Murdoch. Rupert Murdoch invested $140 million, something like that, in Theranos. And Holmes was pushing, pushing him, pushing Murdoch to shut this down. And... This, this is quite an impressive thing to do. What Rupert Murdoch said was, I trust the editorial process of the Wall Street Journal and I'm not going to interfere. If they're right, it'll be proved right. If they're not, then they'll be proved wrong. And so John Carreyrou, the journalist behind all of this, said he was never bothered by it. No one ever, he, he was worried that he might be, but it never happened. In March 2018, Holmes and Balwani were charged with fraud. Holmes can no longer be a director or officer of a publicly traded company for 10 years. They were charged again in June 2018 with 11 counts of fraud and conspiracy. By the end of the summer, the company stated they would formally shut down. And the valuation went from $9 billion to $0, officially. A cool idea. They made it up. And they spent all the time raising money and none of it on the feasibility of what they were actually trying to do. And the belief in that came from, well, Steve Jobs basically said, go get it done, miniaturize the technologies, get everything into an iPhone. Therefore, why couldn't we do that? Well, the answer is very, very simple. If you lie about the quality of medical grade devices and you mess with people's health, there's legislation involved and there's processes you have to follow and they just let the lies pile on. And I think they could have, if they just, you know, if they were to be humble and actually succeed in making this happen, they could have effectively gathered in fundraising to do all the research to make it possible and be honest that that is what they were producing. But I don't believe that that is what they were trying to do. What they wanted to do was be Steve Jobs. Moving on now, the rise and fall of WeWork. Everybody's seen this. WeWork, founded by Adam Neumann and Miguel McKelvey in 2010 with its first building in Soho, New York. The building turned a profit a month after its launch. WeWork, basically, it's a flexible working space. You add spaces you need, use it. It's a community. You can hang out. And the question is, well, is this as... They sold effectively something that made them really, really special. Um, This unity, this everything around it was sort of had this mystique and had this brilliance associated with it. Um, The reality was it was effectively a property company, a real estate company. WeWork proceeded to open four more locations in the next two years. Benchmark gave the company Series A funding of $17 million. By 2014, WeWork had 1.5 million spaces and 10,000 members. It also opened its first international office in London. In 2016, it opened We Live, a full-furnished micro-apartment. In 2017, WeWork made We Grow, a school for kids aged 2 to 11. They also bought Lord & Taylor's flagship store building for $850 million. December 2018, WeWork confidentially submit an IPO 
for the Wii Company, which later which was later announced by Adam Neumann in April 2018. 2019. Later, August 2019, the Wii Company publicly filed its S1 IPO with a valuation of $47 billion. Unfortunately, after the public filing, people had an in-depth look at the Wii Company. The documents showed losses for the last three years and even showed that Adam Neumann forgoed a salary in 2018. However, it also showed he spent $100 million on that school when the company didn't make money. There were more concerns about the profitability and its CEO and co-founder Adam Neumann. As a result, investors' interest weakened and the company saw its valuation halved. By early September, the Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg reported the company's valuation at $20 billion. By mid-September, Reuters reported an even lower valuation of $10 billion. All these led the company to delay their IPO on September 16th. Now it was clear WeWork was headed to bankruptcy. In just six weeks, the company spiraled from a $47 billion valuation to that level. In October, WeWork asked for help from J.B. Morgan and SoftBank. SoftBank bought Adam Neumann out and got him to step away as chairman. There were so many points in this story where basically they raised a load of money and they believed their own hype and then got lost in side projects, of which the school is just the best example. But apparently they were loads. That was just the most egregious. Yes, it's wonderful to set up a school, but why would you blow $100 million on a school when you're, you're a property company that isn't making money? And it's also the, the idea of how can you have a $47 billion? How can you actually put a document together and file it with the SEC because you're going to go public and genuinely think you're going to get away with evaluation like that when in fact you didn't have anything. This is the problem with believing the hype, your own hype, and not focusing on the business. As far as I can see, the valuation here comes from a good pitch. A good pitch that got a lot of funding and that's it. And that is the essence of the problem with Silicon Valley. A good pitch and your own bullshit is not good enough. That is not a business. Let's move on. Wirecard. Founded in 1999, backed up by venture capital as the late stage of the dot-com boom, designed to help websites collect payments from customer credit cards. In 2002, Marcus Brown takes over as chief executive. 2005, Wirecard joins the Frankfurt stock market by taking over the listing of a defunct call center. This way, it can avoid the scrutiny of an initial public offering. Very clever. Joins the stock market by taking over someone else's list. listing, avoids what actually happened to WeWork, the scrutiny with an IPO. The next year, it acquires XCOM and moves into banking. In 2008, the head of a German shareholder association publishes an attack on Wirecard, suggesting balance share irregularities. Ernst Young is then appointed to conduct a special audit. The next year, Ernst Young acted as a group editor. German authorities prosecute two people regarding the first attack. Strange. From 2011 to 2015, Wirecard raises another 500 million euros and goes on a buying spree across Asia in strangely structured deals starting in Singapore. 2015, the FT begins to report inconsistencies in the company's accounts, suggesting 250 million euro, suggesting a hole of 250 million euros. The same year, J Capital Research reports that Wirecard operations across Asia 
are much smaller than what they're being reported as. Hmm. In 2016, another attack, now from pseudonym Zatara, accused Wirecard for, of money laundering. Meanwhile, Wirecard announces it's buying a prepaid payment card business from Citigroup. So the show goes on. They keep acquiring as the attacks come at them online. Now, effectively, I'm imagining these are cyber attacks that are being put together by interested parties. 2017, Wirecard is given a clean audit again by Ernst & Young, renewing investor enthusiasm. The group then announces it will take over Citi's payment in 11 countries across Asia. Marcus Brown ends the year by borrowing 150 million euros from Deutsche Bank. Now we're moving closer to today. The questions are still there, but yet somehow they are still alive. Inside Wirecard Singapore office, the group's legal team starts investigating three members of the finance team after an internal whistleblower raises the alarm about a plan to fraudulently send money to India via third parties known as round-tripping. August 2018, Wirecard shares hit a peak of 191 euros, making the company valued at 24 billion euros. February 2019, the Singaporean police raid Wirecard's offices. March 2019, the FD publishes a story that half of Wirecard's business is outsourced. The payment processings are handled by partners who then give Wirecard a commission. FT attempts to visit some of Wirecard's partners in Asia. Only in the Philippines, they found out that the address Wirecard was using as an office is actually the house of a retired seamstress. Wirecard sues the FT and the Singaporean Authority. April 2019, Wirecard announces receiving 900 million euros from SoftBank. October 2019, FT again. FT again publishes documents indicating that the profits at Wirecard's units in Dubai and Dublin are fraudulently inflated and that customers enlisted in documents given to Ernst & Young did not exist. From March to June 2020, there's a back and forth of audits of Wirecard. June 5th, police search Wirecard's offices after Munich prosecutors launch a criminal investigation over Chief Executive Marcus Brown. Less than two weeks later, in the Philippines, Ernst & Young is informed that documents supposedly detailing 1.9 billion euros in balance are spurious. June, June 18th, when Wirecard is supposed to announce their audit, they announce they're missing 1.9 billion euros. A week later, Marcus Brown is arrested by Munich police. Now, this is a kind of a spectacular rise and fall. Now, everything's unproven. It's all allegations. But there's a pattern here of receiving a clean audit, figuring out a way how to fool auditors, figuring a way how to fake your balance sheet, fake everything about your company that's supposed to be a business in order to maintain what you claim to be your business. But the collaboration here, and this is where I actually find the issues in Silicon Valley worrying. The collaboration that appears to be happening here, and let's say it's un unbeknownst collaboration with Ernst & Young here in this case, but the, the, the balance of the relationship between Wirecard and its auditors reminds me of the bank's 
mortgage-backed securities and the ratings agencies that led to the financial crash. It's, to me, the same thing. It's a massive fraudulent practice that maybe parties don't exactly know what they're going on. But, you know, these are the egregious examples. But this is the problem. It's you play the game and, and you play the numbers, but that doesn't give you a business. And to our next section, fraud, faking it, and excusing outright lies. The Theranos story is an important lesson for Silicon Valley. Gina Choi, director of the SEC San Francisco regional office, said, Innovators who seek to revolutionize and disrupt an industry must tell investors the truth about what their technology can do today, not just what they hope it might do someday. And that's the core point. You've got to be able to tell the truth and sell the vision, not sell the lie. This is some reporting from BuzzFeed. On the lies of Theranos, here's a list. Theranos said the blood testing technology can test up to 200 different types of tests. Can, can run 200 different types of tests. The truth was it could only do around a dozen at most. Two, they gave fake demonstrations to Walgreens. Three, Theranos gave fake demonstrations and misleading information regarding their clinical trials to investors. Four, Holmes misled the public about its military contract. It was never used in practice. Five, Theranos misled investors by saying it would make $100 million a year when it only made 100000 Holmes repeat, oh, sorry. Six, Holmes repeatedly told investors they don't need FDA approval when in fact they did. Seven, Theranos glorified all their lies by putting Holmes in front of magazines and publications. And this is where you come to it. It's the toxic Silicon Valley culture. Fake it till you make it and move fast, break it. Which was really the motto of Elizabeth Holmes that she put, for, that she put forward. She betrayed herself as a crusader against the tyranny of pharmaceutical, well, maybe not necessarily pharma, let's just say the healthcare industry, which is, you know, a popular thing to rail against in the States. But it's, yeah, break the industry, get into it. Well, yes, but you need to not be lying. You need to be telling the truth. Fake it till you make it suggests that by pretending a person can make certain qualities manifest in their real life. This is true. Self-efficacy is important. The idea was brought to the modern age in 1920 by Alfred Adler, disciple of Sigmund Freud, who used it in cognitive behavioral therapy. Adler developed a therapeutic, therapeutic technique that he called acting as if. Today, this technique is often described as role-playing. Be who you want to be. Dress for success. Dress for the job you want, not the one you have. Yeah, yeah, they, these, this has a role. It does have a role. But it doesn't excuse everything you do. You have to have some reality in there. You have to know other Silicon Valley scandals. Zenefit skirted compliance regulation. The Honest Company fraudulently labeled some of its products. Oh, that was a famous one. It was called The Honest Company. Outcome Health gave fraudulent and false information to encourage financiers to invest more money by selling advertising inventory, well, more than the company actually had. They oversold it. Then there's the case of Yogome. This educational technology startup became kind of a standard for many companies who wanted to be successful outside Latin America. Between 2013 and 2017, Yogome managed to raise more than $30 million in funds and seed capital in Mexico, as well as in Silicon Valley. 
But according to a source who spoke to Forbes Mexico, Manolo Diaz had faked the numbers of his company to deceive investors and the market in general. And there's big risks when you start to deceive the market in general. Ordinary people suffer when the market suffers that badly. But why do they do it? Well, you need to raise money. That's what it seems to come comes down to. And that's our next section, fundraising issues. Oh, sorry, investors back promising business ideas, particularly ones with the potential dis to disrupt an established industry. Massive potential there to make a lot of money. They also like to support larger-than-life founders or those who appear to possess more intellectual and personality horsepower than their peers, like Elon Musk, Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, Oprah Winfrey. Nonetheless, we only need to look at Theranos and its founder Elizabeth Holmes for an example of what can happen when an investment community falls in love with a founder and fails to peel back the layers of their business to see if the hype matches reality. That's all from Fraud Magazine. Beautiful quote which really sums everything up. You fall in love with the, what you believe and you want the person to be. And yes, there's an element of you do need to do that if you're going to captivate people. Even if you're not trying to raise money, you're just trying to win business or, or build the reputation of your company. VCs and private equity firms need to hire CFEs. Their job is to help evaluate startups by reviewing companies' financials, conducting background checks on founders, and participating in meetings with executive teams. Basically, you need to be able to do your due diligence. Also from Fraud Magazine. There's three important benefits from raising capital for startups, and it's important to remember that too. You get the cash to facilitate business growth. You have the validation, and that's what's so important, is the validation to attract talent, media attention, and customers. You need people to believe in you. Everybody, people who are coming to work for you, people who are going to spread your message, and people who are going to buy your product. And I'm sure it feels good to raise a lot of money, but it's not the same as running a business. Guidance for tips from experts for networking and resources. You get that when you raise capital. You have highly experienced and intelligent people who have a wide breadth of experience to give you advice because they're also invested in it, in you being successful. Jakob Kostecki, the founder of Startup Fact Check, said that three quarters of the 150 early stage startups he investigated pitched investors with misleading or purposely incomplete information like identifying as customers people who are merely using a free trial or taking full credit for past projects they only played a small role in. That's a big one. That is a big one. The average of seed round ooh, the average seed round of a US startup is seven hundred thousand dollars. Less than half went to the second round or Series A startup. So basically overwhelming majority failed. Seventy seven percent of small businesses rely on personal savings for initial funds. A third starts small with less than $5,000. I think when you're working with your own money and when you're working with a very small amount, you make far better decisions. And then really here's the question is, look, if it's generating wealth and it's bringing success and it's changing the way the world works and it's keeping the society moving forward, what's wrong with it? Well, the question is, is it sustainable? Can it be kept up indefinitely? Well, I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think that we can maintain massive frauds, you know, for decades and years without massive consequences. 
And I think the biggest consequence right at the moment is the corruption of talent because people are being taught and they're being validated that the aim of, of life is to raise the money, not to make the money. And that there's too many ways in for people who are perfectly willing to lie and to commit clearly fraudulent acts to succeed in this world. You have to be careful what you reward and what you incentivize. The fundraising carousel, I worry about it. But what is a sustainable startup? Well, number one, it's endurance, no cutting corners. It's got to work. You've got to be able to last. Work with limited resources. Don't just spend money. You've got to be able to control it. Otherwise, you don't have a business. You have a lifeline and then another lifeline. And see David versus Goliath. Be ready to face other massive startups backed by VC and backed by angel investors. Because guess what? Your edge is on them. They are not, not set up to be as sustainable as you some of the time. Try to do things on your own. Try to be really, really tight. Now's a good time to start a company with economic gloom everywhere. Now you do it because you can't muck about. No nonsense. Bad times make for great businesses. So what are your funding options then? Well, you bootstrap the business, what I did. Using personal saved up funds or getting funding from friends and family. I, I mean, I, I would say even go away from that. See what you can do on your own. See what you can do from a sale. God, sell something. Crowdfunding, asking for money from strangers over the internet. Kickstarter, there's loads of stuff to help you do this. It just depends on what you're trying to sell. Look for angel investment. Angel investment means people with lots of capital who are willing to invest in the business. What that means is look for someone who can help you, who can advise you and who can fund you. You do all the work, but they will be able to look at it. Look for venture capital. Venture capitalists are managed by professionals with a keen eye to look over a prospective company or business. Seek funds from business incubators and accelerators. Business incubators nurture the company while accelerators fast track the business. Find ways to get there, but the goals have to be the same. You have to be sustainable. Another way, great way of getting it is enter contests. Source funds by winning contests. Raise money through bank loans. Banks will vet you. They will vet you. Government programs that offer startup capital, another great one. And this is my favorite one, it's product pre-sale, selling assets or credit cards, although I'd go against credit cards to be honest. But it's product pre-sale. What can you sell? What can you actually sell to a customer to make money? To prove that you can do something? Because that'll help you raise money. And it'll give you some confidence. It'll give you the ability to continue. It'll give you the motivation to continue as well. The ideas over profitability and proper business practice. Here's 10 essentials for business practice. Self-assessment. Surround yourself with a good team. Assess your product. Know your market and competitors. Recognize opportunities. Fair costing and pricing. Have good terms of trade and paperwork. Keep clear records. Be tax compliant. Good planning. Work hard. There's a reason the rule book is there. Good business practice. Refer back to the business plan regularly. Set benchmarks for success. Monitor performance. Adapt to changing customer behavior. Adapt to new trends and information. Lead by example. Learn from the market. Look at everything around you. Purpose over profit movement. And this is the final quote that we're going to touch on. The desire for having a socially conscious company to buy from started 
with consumers and businesses that realized they had the power to influence the basis for why companies were in business. That's where Theranos, the idea of it starts. That is where, that is the myth that Elizabeth Holmes sold so well. It was the myth that you were changing the world. When it works well, it's brilliant. When it helps the world, it's fantastic. When it doesn't, it can really, really be disastrous. I hope you enjoyed that little kind of tour around massive cases in Silicon Valley when things go wrong. I, I wanted to touch on something that I worry about sometimes is that, is this the next bubble? Is this the next thing that's going to massively undercut our economy? Maybe COVID has kind of preempted the probability that that's going to happen. But I do think it's worrying when talent is being pushed to things that, that give rewards for something other than business success. And I think we have to worry when that starts to happen. Basically, Silicon Valley and the startup world is actually amazing. It's incredible. It's fascinating. It's brilliant. But you just got to remember that you have to be careful too. There's a lot of lying out there. There's a lot of frauds. There's a lot of people who are willing to say and do anything to get to the next stage. So remember that being aspirational also means being a good person, being a good business person and putting business practice and sensible decision-making first in, to, in, in support of brilliant ideas, not in opposition to them. But thanks for joining. I hope you enjoyed this uh, little series of mini tirades. As always, try to give me feedback. And if you are running a startup, good luck. I hope it all goes well for you. Thank you and goodbye. We'll speak next time.